invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians 5. You'll need a Bible to follow along, so these brothers have some. If you need a Bible, just get uh, their attention and they'll get one of those to you. It's marked for you at 1 Thessalonians 5. And you can keep that Bible as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of God's Word. This past year, we celebrated the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation. That was a movement to protest erroneous doctrines and practices of the Roman Catholic Church and then to reform them. Many are familiar with the watchwords of the Reformation. In Latin, sola scriptura, sola fide, sola gratia, solus Christus, soli deo gloria. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone, on the authority of the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Many are familiar with the Reformation and thankful for it, indeed, as we are its children and beneficiaries. But fewer of us are familiar with what historians call the Counter-Reformation. That's the response of the Roman Catholic Church to the Protestants. Counter-Reformation had several elements, including the convening of the infamous Council of Trent, which met sporadically over an 18-year period, and it pronounced a number of official anathemas, that is, damnation against Protestants and Protestant beliefs. The Catholic Church considered, and still considers, the doctrines of the Reformation to be heretical, and it did all it could do to stamp those out, unsuccessfully, thanks be to God. One of the ablest figures of the Counter-Reformation was Robert Bellarmine, the Pope's personal theologian. Bellarmine wrote this, The greatest of all the Protestant heresies is... And I'll give you the answer in a minute. But what do you think he said there? The greatest of all the Protestant heresies... You think about the solas, the alones, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, the glory of God alone, on the authority of Scripture alone. It might be one of those. What doctrine do you think he selected as the greatest error from the perspective of Roman Catholic theology? Justification by faith alone, perhaps Scripture alone, or some of the others, but actually none of them completes that sentence. What he wrote was this. The greatest of all Protestant heresies is assurance. The greatest of all the heresies is the idea that one can be assured that him or her, that he or she has a relationship with God. One theologian said this. A moment's reflection explains why Bellarmine said that. If justification is not by faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone, If faith needs to be completed by works, if Christ's work is somehow repeated, if grace is not free and sovereign, then something always needs to be done to be added for final justification to be ours. And that is exactly the problem. If final justification is dependent on something that we have to complete, it's not only, it is not possible to enjoy assurance of salvation. 
For then, theologically, final justification is contingent and it's uncertain and it's impossible for anyone to be sure of salvation. But he goes on, if Christ has done everything, if justification is by grace without contributory works, and if it's received by faith's empty hands, then assurance, even full assurance, is possible for every believer. Today is our final message in First Thessalonians. Over the past five months, we've seen what God looks for in a church. And we end today where we began. That a good church, a model church, like the one described in this book, is a church that's committed to the gospel. Comprised of people who have been changed by it, who are convinced of it, and so are living in light of that gospel. In the first chapter, we were reminded that in the gospel, God has chosen us and he has changed us. I'll read for you from chapter 1, beginning in verse 4. We know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit in deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us, and they tell us, How you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. A model church is one that embraces the gospel, is comprised of people who are convinced of its truth and who are living in light of that. And those people will finish the course that God has set before them. They can be assured of that. In 2014, an Algerian runner lost an 800-meter race in Shanghai, China, in the worst possible way. He was leading, and as he neared the line, he put up his arms in celebration, and he coasted to the finish. That gave a Kenyan runner enough time to pass him for the win. In fact, the Algerian never looked to his right to see the Kenyan charging to the line. And that happened just one day after a Spanish cyclist lost a stage of the Tour of California after celebrating one lap too soon. Now, can you imagine that? This is a far worse scenario. What if one gets to the finish line of life, thinks that he or she has lived a life that has pleased God, only to find out that your confidence or your celebration was too soon or not valid? That somehow you get to the end of your life as a true believer in Jesus Christ, and he decides you're not worthy of the win. As we close our study of 1 Thessalonians, we're assured That implicit in the good news that is the gospel is that this will not happen. When a true believer gets to the finish line of life, no one is going to tap us on the shoulder and say, you're a lap short. All of God's people will cross the finish line successfully. We're going to see that today. Let's pray and ask God to help us as we do. Our Father, we thank you for assembling us now. Here we are as your people in your presence. 
with your word open before us. Lord, we thank you for this privilege. It's a privilege to know you, to know now more of you, and more know, know more about what you've done for us. Lord, it's a privilege to be people who want to do that, because that's your work in us, giving us this desire to be conformed to the image of Jesus. And so we ask you to help us, aid us in that task as we look into your word. Help us to leave this place better equipped to bring glory to your name than when we came. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, each week we insert in your program an outline of the message. If you don't have that out as yet, I encourage you to take that out now. And you see, first of all, that we say there, salvation is God's work. Salvation is God's work. So you see that on the screen? Look at that. The outline point on the screen. This is the first time I have ever done that. Our church has existed for 16 and a half years. I've been giving out printed outlines for 16 and a half years. It's the first time the answers have appeared on the screen as an aid to you. And this is all because last week, Pastor Larry filled in otherwise known as, affectionately known as Pastor Geek to us, because Larry is so proficient in technology. And Larry put the answers on the screen, and now there's a move afoot that says Brown has to do the same. So thank you, Larry, for creating more work for me. Salvation is God's work. Verse 23. May God himself... The God of peace, sanctify you. Now, this is a prayer. You're going to see a number of may God asking God to perform certain things. And it's a prayer of Paul who wrote the book of First Thessalonians. And by extension, it's a prayer of Paul for us. He said much in this letter, has Paul, about the need to live in light of the gospel that we profess. But as he signs off, he wants them and us to know that it is not all up to us. Oh, if it were up to us, friends, we could have no assurance. Isn't that true? But thanks be to God, it is not all up to us. Rather, salvation is all of God. And the one who has made it possible is the God of peace. In that he is the one who has initiated the peace that is the result of our salvation. That is, when God undertook to call out of the world and to himself a people for his very own, and he sent his son to be the provision for that salvation, and the Holy Spirit applied that to us now that we are saved. We will see that sanctified is a synonym for saved, delivered, rescued. And now that that has happened to us, we have peace with God. God initiated all of that. So that the hostilities between those who were his enemies outside of his family because of our sin are now in his family and at peace with him. Romans chapter 5 says, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that this passage is referring in 1 Thessalonians 5 to our salvation is seen in that word sanctify in verse 23, which means to set apart, to be made holy. When we're first saved, we are set apart. That is, we are called out of the world and to God. And then after that, he continues that setting apart throughout our lives until the final setting apart when we're with the Lord. 
And so salvation is God's work. He began that work with his plan in eternity past. We learned about it when we heard the gospel. And he applied, the Holy Spirit applied his work to us by opening our hearts. Salvation is God's work. And I say in your outline, it is a complete work. It's God's work and it's complete. Verse 23 says, May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless. The saving work that God has undertaking taken for us includes all that we are and all that we need. Through and through is used only here in the New Testament. It's a compound of two Greek words. Holos, which means whole, complete, and telos, which means end or finish. It's asking that sanctification would leave no part of us unaffected. So every part of who we are has been and is being set apart by God and for God. Every part, our mind, our will, our emotion. But not just the inner part of who we are, but the outer as well. Because he adds your spirit, your soul, your body. Now, in those three words are included the two major categories of what we are as human beings. We are, the Bible teaches, both immaterial and material. We are both spiritual and physical. So it says spirit, soul, and body. And when it says spirit and soul, I don't believe it's distinguishing those as two different parts of who we are. Because in Scripture, there's no clear difference between the two. And so I am, for you budding theologians out there, a dichotomist. I believe that we are simply an immaterial part and a material part. There are some people who are trichotomists, that they see a difference between the spirit and the soul, but I've read many of those definitions, and those are all distinctions without a difference. It says this in this way to mean All of who we are spiritually, spirit and soul, and all of what we are material, materially in our body. It's similar to the way that Jesus piled up descriptions to indicate the extent of the love that we're to have for God. You remember that Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God. But notice, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. These are all synonyms of the innermost being of who we are. And we're to love God with all of that. He's not making a distinction or a hard distinction between those. And then it includes, though, does Paul's description in 1 Thessalonians 5.23 includes the body so that we don't make the mistake of thinking our salvation is only spiritual. God has and is and will sanctify, set apart our bodies also. He is working outward what he has started inwardly. The body itself will one day be redeemed. But in the meantime, these bodies of ours are to be used for righteousness. These physical bodies of ours, like every inner part of us, is to be used for God and for righteousness. Romans 6 says this, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. All of us. He has saved and is saving. 
That's why the writer of Hebrews could say of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that he is one who is able to save completely. Through and through, spirit, soul, and body, beginning to end. Salvation is God's work. It is a complete work, and I say in your outline, it is a completed work. A complete work and a completed work. May you be entirely kept blameless, end of verse 23, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The prayer is that God complete his salvation in us to the very end. We need to always remember, friends, that there are three phases of our salvation. Three. Most of us focus just on the one. We just say, are you saved? And we look back at a time in which we prayed to ask Jesus into our life and we were saved in that moment. That's good and that's right. But that's only one part of the salvation that the Bible speaks of. At conversion... We become set apart as a child of God and positionally we are sanctified, set apart. No longer God's enemies, but now in his family. But then in life, we're engaged in practical sanctification. That is, setting apart in practice, in the way we live. And God is at work in that, ensuring that that happens because we each live still with the struggle of the sin nature and the fight against sin. And then there's this third phase. One day we will be set apart, thanks be to God, from the very presence of sin. And so we often say rightly that we are saved from the penalty of sin and the power of sin and in the future, the presence of sin. And the Bible teaches that in God's people, this is guaranteed. This is a completed work in the mind of God. We're not done yet, but from God's perspective, it's as good as done. We see that in a number of places in Scripture, but no place more clearly and more preciously than in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, the same Paul who wrote these closing words to the Thessalonians said this to the Romans, those he predestined, He also called those he called. He also justified those he justified. He also glorified. Now, notice, friends, that out of every each of the preceding groups, all of them also experienced the succeeding. Guarantee. So those he predestined. All of those he predestined, he called. And in turn, all of those he called, which is everybody he predestined, he justified. And everybody that he has predestined and called and justified, he also glorified. That is, everybody makes it from beginning in eternity past to the end in glorification. Everybody. You notice that three of those have already been done in your life if you belong to Jesus. Predestined certainly has been done in eternity past. You were called, past tense, at a point in time when you heard the gospel message and God the Holy Spirit moved upon you, opened your heart to it, and you received Christ as Savior and bowed before Him as Lord. 
And at that moment, you were justified. God declared you to be righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ in that marvelous moment. But those he justified, that's all past tense, those three. He also glorified past tense, and yet glorification has not yet happened. Why is it put in the past tense? And why is it in here in this unbreakable chain? It's because in the mind of God, our crossing the finish line and our glorification in Jesus is as good as done. Salvation is his work. It's a complete work and it's a completed work. And friends, we need to understand that when we look at our struggles and we understandably wonder what God really thinks of us and will he ever really be able Will we ever really be able to please God with our lives? But because of what God has done for us through Jesus and applied by his Holy Spirit, indeed, that guarantee is given to us by God himself. That passage that I quoted earlier from Hebrews chapter 7 goes on. He is able to save completely, notice, those who come to God through him, that is, through Jesus. So having come to God through Jesus, having been given to God the Father by Jesus, having been purchased for God by Jesus, now all of these guarantees are us in him. And so what is called the great exchange? You all have heard that? The great exchange of the gospel. The great exchange, if you truly understand all that it means, is truly great. Let me remind you of what's involved in the great exchange, what Jesus takes from us, and then in turn he exchanges by crediting to us. Jesus takes from us our unrighteousness, and he credits to us his righteousness. Jesus takes from us our sin, past, present, and future. And he credits us with his complete sinlessness. Jesus takes from us our just, guilty verdict before God. All of us come into this world pronounced guilty before a holy God. He takes that from us. And he credits us with his just, innocent verdict before God. Jesus takes from us the punishment that we have earned. And he credits us with the satisfaction before God that he has earned. He takes from us our alienation from God. He credits us with adoption into the eternal family of God. Friends, do you understand why we call it good news? Now, all of this, Paul is saying, may God do all of this. This is my prayer for you as I sign off this letter. And so as a prayer, we may think, well, there's some doubt about it. I mean, he's praying that this will happen. But again, how do we know it's for sure going to happen? But hear this. This is a prayer that's based on God's promise. We're going to see that next. Salvation is God's work, but I say in your outline, salvation is also God's promise. It's God's work and it's God's promise. Verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. So here's this prayer that all of this will happen. 
that you'll be saved completely through and through, spirit, soul, and body, that you will be presented blameless, kept blameless until the day of Jesus. That's the prayer, but how do I know for sure that this is going to happen? Because it's based upon the promise of God, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. God's faithfulness, friends, is more than the faithfulness of a pet who reacts the same way to the same stimuli. You know, we might think of a a companion that's been with you for a long time. You have a trusted puppy, dog. My faithful companion. Always does what I tell him to do. Always there for me. But God's faithfulness is more than that. And God's faithfulness is more than the faithfulness of a friend who's faithful to the promises that they are able to keep, that they can keep. But you see, friends, there are some times when we're unable to perform what it is we promise. Isn't that true? I remembered this. I thought about this. I thought about my daughter, Annie. When she was little and we used to have, there would be a storm, a really bad storm. Maybe the power went out at home. And she would say, Daddy, is there going to be a tornado? And I would say, "Uh, no. And then she would say, you promise? Well, now Daddy, Pastor Daddy, is faced with lying to her. Just to calm her in the moment. Or telling her the truth, which, and I opted for the truth. I would say, you know, Annie, Jesus promises to take care of us. You see, I want to point her away from me and to him. Because the truth is, I could promise her there's not going to be a tornado. But the fact is, I don't know, do I? And I am not able to keep that promise. Or to that are married for many, many years, and they promise to never leave each other, and they are faithful to that. But, of course, then one of them is going to, in most cases, die before the other. And more than one widow or widower has been left asking in anger, how could you leave me alone? Well, it's because, although we promise we will never leave, that's a promise we can't keep, ultimately. But you see, friends, God is not only willing to keep his promise, he's able to do that. God God always is able to fulfill what he intends. And so the psalmist says the Lord is faithful to all his promises. And that is why the Bible can say, as it does famously in Philippians chapter 1, Paul again writing, I am confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's why in that well-known and marvelous passage in Romans chapter 8, to which I alluded earlier. I want to read some more of that for you, just to have you see how firmly God has promised this, this God who can always fulfill the things he has promised to his people. In Romans chapter 8, let me read for you. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Well, that's marvelous in itself. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
But then Romans chapter 8 later goes on to talk about how that plays out in life. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the images of his son, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then? Shall we say, in response to these things, if God is for us, who can be against us? And the expected answer is, of course, no one. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? And again, the expected answer is, no one. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the expected answer, no one. Why? Because God is faithful. God has promised. And God is able and willing to fulfill his promises to his people. Salvation is God's work. It's God's promise. And I say in your outline, it is for God's people. One of the means of grace to God's people is God's people. God uses us to help each other progress in this salvation that he has guaranteed to us. In three ways, quickly. First, we pray for one another. Verse 25 says, brothers and sisters, pray for us. So this is already guaranteed. Why do I pray for it? Why would I pray? Why should you pray, Lord, see Pastor Ken finish well? And by the way, please pray that. Finish well. Why should I pray for you, O God? Do your work in him, in her. So that they bring glory to your name through this trial that they're going through. So that on the backside of that trial, they're more like Jesus than they were when they entered this trial. Continue your Good work in them. Why would I pray that if it's guaranteed? Here's why, friends. The best prayers you and I can ever pray are those that are based on the promises of God. And we pray those prayers back to God. Theologian Sinclair Ferguson says this. This is the prayer of faith. To ask God to accomplish what he has promised in his word. That promise is the only ground for our confidence in asking. Such confidence is not worked up from within our emotional life, but rather it's given and supported by what God has said in Scripture. Truly righteous men and women of faith know the value of their Heavenly Father's promises. They go to Him as children do to a loving human father. They know that if they can say to an earthly father, but Father, you promised, they can both persist in asking and be confident that He will keep His word. How much more our Heavenly Father, who has given us His Son for our salvation, We have no other grounds of confidence that he hears our prayers and we need none. One of the means that God uses to move his people in that guaranteed salvation are our prayers for one another. And I say in your outline that we provoke one another. We pray for one another and we provoke one another. Verse 26, greet all God's people with a holy kiss. 
Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. Now, that was their custom in their day. The equivalent for us would be a handshake or a hug. Paul added holy kiss for the sake of the teenagers in the group. Just have to make sure you qualify that. And notice, greet all God's people. All God's people. There are no cliques. There are to be no cliques. There are not subgroups within the family of God. All God's people are part of God's family. And going back to chapter 1, it is God who chose those who would be part of his family. We didn't choose them. So just like you don't choose the members of your own family, you don't choose the members of God's family, and you don't selectively choose those that you are going to seek to provoke to good deeds and to love in our fellowship with one another. And then lastly, we not only pray for one another, provoke one another, we gather with one another. Verse 27 says, I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. Now think about what's assumed there. Have this letter read before all the brothers and sisters. That's because the brothers and sisters got together regularly. They got together regularly, and one of the things that was done in those regular meetings was the reading of God's Word. That's why we do that every time we gather together as well. The Bible tells us elsewhere that it also included giving. It also included the proclamation of God's Word and so on. And so we gather with one another. All because we are in this thing together. That's why Paul concludes his letter this way. If you're going to continue to be the model church that God has made you, then you are going to need each other in this great endeavor. And he signs off lastly with the final verse. Verse 28. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Verse 28 ties all of this to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why I've titled this message, if you look at the top of your outline, Crossing the Finish Line. With emphasis on cross. Because that's the source of the grace that we receive It's all because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's your take-home truth. Christians are saved. They are being saved. And because of God's promise and guarantee, they will be saved. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you again for this great privilege of being gathered before you as your people. And to be taught from your word. Oh, Lord, these marvelous truths that you have given us in Scripture about the good news of the gospel and the work that has been done and completed on our behalf and the life and death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, all of that in the great exchange has been applied to us. And Lord, you have given us your promise that those who belong to you will make it across the finish line. Thank you, Lord, for that. And so, Lord, I ask you now to help me this week Help my brothers and sisters this week to live in light of these truths. That our God is our Father. That our God is the one who has called us out of the world and to himself. That you are the one who is at work in us. You are working every aspect of every circumstance that you would allow in our lives. And you are doing all of that in order to bring us forward toward the goal of being completely like Jesus in our one day glorification. In the meantime then, Lord. 
Help us to remember that we need one another, that we're in this together, to use the means of grace that you have supplied in order for us to take the next steps in godliness. And as a result of all of this, may we, your people, magnify your name through our lives. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.